conquest of southern Canaan is complete. But when Israel turns to the north, they come to meet the largest army they've ever seen. On The Bible Brief. Have you donated to the Bible Literacy Foundation? We'd love for you to become part of the Bible Lit team as we make Bible learning content. Want to donate today? Check out the link in the show notes. The battle plan is in full swing. The people of Israel had crossed the Jordan River on dry ground before beginning this war for the land of Canaan. First, they had a quick victory at Jericho as God miraculously caused the walls of the city to fall down before them. Soon thereafter, they took the city of Ai, where they had eventual victory after God commanded an ambush of the city. They had speedily established a beachhead in the land and a base camp from which they could continue their campaign into Canaan. They encamped at Gilgal, the place where Joshua had circumcised this new generation and where they had celebrated Passover for the first time the place where the manna bread from heaven had ceased, and the place where Israel first ate produce from the land. Gilgal was their home base for now. Now Gilgal was strategically located at about the midpoint latitude of the land of Canaan. About half of the land was to the north, and half was to the south. And remember, this north-south division was effectively between two major people groups in the land. The southern part of Canaan was occupied by mostly Amorites while the northern portion was occupied by Canaanites. This gave a natural shape to the war for the land. First, Israel would go to the south to defeat the Amorites, and then they would follow that up with a campaign to the north to defeat the Canaanites. This strategy had been going swimmingly so far. The Amorites had attempted an aggressive maneuver against Israel's new ally at Gibeon, and the Amorites were summarily crushed by the men of Israel. Those five Amorite kings grossly miscalculated the strength of the Israelite army, primarily because they had miscalculated the power of Israel's God, Yahweh. Yahweh was the strength of the nation, but more than that, he was the power behind nature, a power demonstrated in the large hailstones that pummeled the Amorite forces, a power further demonstrated in the celestial event of allowing the sun to remain in the sky for a full day longer than usual causing the longest day in recorded history. When Yahweh fought for Israel, Israel was unstoppable, undefeatable, and invincible. After this victory over the Amorites, the Israelite campaign in southern Canaan continued with similar success. So much success that the Bible essentially summarizes the remaining battles, because they all turn out the same way. Victory, victory, victory. We read this in Joshua chapter 10, starting in verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country in the Negev, and the lowland in the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. The southern campaign has been completed with great success. There were still some pockets of resistance, but by and large, the southern portion of Canaan had been conquered. The nation of Israel controlled the southern part of the land. Now, news of this victory wasn't simply contained to the conquered. 
because it spread to northern Canaan as well. There, the Canaanite people group was in control, and that people group was determined to mount resistance to Israel when they inevitably turned their attention from the south. And they even form an alliance outside of their ethnic group. These Canaanites ally themselves with other Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Hivites. If Israel thought that the army of the Southern Alliance was something, this was even more substantial. In fact, the Bible describes this Northern Alliance in momentous terms. It says in Joshua chapter 11, starting in verse 4, that they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight Israel. This is the greatest force yet that Israel has been up against since they saw Egypt at the Red Sea. A military force so vast that it was like the number of the sand on the seashore, with such power that it contained very many horses and chariots. In some ways, this army had come together to take a final stand against the Israelites. They had unified despite their ethnic differences, and they had encamped in the north as they prepared for battle with the unstoppable Israelite army. Meanwhile, the Israelite army was traveling north from their home base in Gilgal, and the Lord spoke to Joshua and said, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Yahweh continued the same encouragement that he had communicated from the very beginning of this conquest. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. As you face an army with innumerable troops, don't be afraid. But he follows up this encouragement with a command, too. He says that you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. This wouldn't necessarily be a signal of conquest, so much as a signal of faith for the nation of Israel. When the defeat of this northern alliance was complete, rather than capturing and using the horses and chariots of the enemy, they would destroy them. They would take these great tools of warfare and simply burn them. This was an act of faith, because it demonstrated that the trust of the people would not be in horses or chariots or any other tool of war. Their trust was in Yahweh, their God who fought for them. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against their enemies by the waters of Merah and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Mizraphoth, Maine, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord had said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. The great horde of the north was decimated and Yahweh was the reason. No army can stand against Israel when Yahweh is in their midst. Israel had defeated the great power of northern Canaan, and the next task was clean up conquest. After this great victory, Joshua and the army of Israel continued this great conquest of the north. They went to the cities and devoted the people in them to destruction. They removed the Canaanites, their temptations, and their false religion from the land. Joshua was leading the army to do all that Moses had commanded in his final speech to the people, and Joshua was leading them well. And we find out that apart from the Gibeonite covenant that Israel made with them, there were no other attempts at peace. No other cities or peoples wanted peace with Israel. Instead, they wanted to fight. 
and we find out that this stubbornness to fight actually came from God himself as a judgment on the Canaanites. We read this in Joshua chapter 11, starting in verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Just as God had hardened the defiant and rebellious heart of Pharaoh in the latter plagues upon Egypt, so here God hardened the hearts of the people of the land so that they would fight and be destroyed by Israel. God used the hardening of their rebellion as a tool of judgment, judgment for generation upon generation of sin and evil perpetrated in the land. In fact, we know that this judgment was part of God's plan on the people in the land ever since Abraham. We learn back in Genesis 15 that Abraham's offspring would be in a foreign land for a long time before they would get to return to Canaan. And the reason that God gives to Abraham for this is that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Said another way, God was not yet ready to judge the Amorites because their sin hadn't reached its zenith. They weren't yet wholly deserving of the judgment that he would bring upon them. He delayed his judgment over 400 years on the people. He gave opportunity for repentance, like Rahab demonstrated, upon hearing of Israel's victories. But when they would not turn away from their sin, when they dug in against Israel, the Lord hardened their hearts so that they might be destroyed by Israel. God's nation was a tool of his judgment upon these rebellious people. By the end of the initial campaign for the land, Joshua and the army of Israel had been met with great success. While there were pockets of rebellion still remaining, they yet controlled the land of Canaan. They controlled the great inheritance of the people of Israel, promised to Abraham when God called him to this land many centuries ago. We get a sense of victory with this final note of the campaign. We read this in verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from the war. The initial conquest was complete. What was formerly controlled by various people groups with their many gods was now controlled by Israel with their one God. The God who had given them victory over all their enemies. The God who had fought with hailstones, with sun and moon, with trumpet blasts, and with the swords of Israel. Yahweh was the strength of the nation, and that strength to defeat the enemies of Israel finally resulted in rest within Canaan. The peoples of the land were decimated. The old alliances had faltered. And now the land was the land of Israel. Join us next time as we see the beginnings of a new conflict in the land. Not a conflict with the Canaanites, but among Israel itself. The war for Canaan is over, but with the actions of a few tribes, it seems civil war is brewing. The Bible Brief is brought to you by the Bible Literacy Foundation, dedicated to helping people like you learn the Bible. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2023